0: Hello, welcome to some Derp's Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And we're back after a short sabbatical. Today we're going to talk about both Barbie and Oppenheimer. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the fuck to know what it is we do on this podcast. On this <laughs> podcast,
1: we just fucking talk about movies. This is a fucking movies podcast now, I guess. No. But even though I like, I'm like, i glad we did this, because Barb and has turned out to be... I, I think it is a true sea change, right? In the land of sort of movie making. Um, but... Uh, uh yeah, I just feel like we've talked so, we've talked so much. We'll Barben talk about the Run 2 next
0: week. We're both gonna play it, right? Yeah, true. Okay, episode.
1: true, true, true. Um. um anyway, but yeah, it. we're talking about fucking Barbenheimer. Yes. Uh, and the 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 double feature that got memed into existence by by Twitter because both Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's Robert Opp, uh, Oppenheimer biopic. Um, and uh, Greta Gerwig's uh, Barbie released on the exact same day. Uh, people started memeing about the double feature in the way that you would maybe like see people talk about doing like a Star Wars marathon or like an MCU marathon or whatever. There were all these jokes about it, and those jokes actualized for some reason. I, and I, now I, we're looking at the, the biggest weekend box office in in years in history.
0: Yeah. So a couple of things just on like kind of like the. Like the 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 meta meta theater, you know, theater economics of it. One, I wanna give a lot of credit to the Barbie team, right? Just because like they fucking put work in, right? Barbie was everywhere. There was a rumor that the world had like a shortage on pink paint because of the Barbie movie or something, which appears to be like mostly a fabrication by the Barbie marketing team, or something that's like slightly true that the Barbie marketing team spread out into existence. This is also kind of like the first two really big blockbusters that are like unambiguously post pandemic that aren't like a superhero film. Right. And um, the superhero films having kind of been like, you know, kind of like lost a lot of their luster. So I think that's part of it. Plus it's, you know, one half of it's Christopher Nolan, one half of it's like, like I'm sure we'll have some thoughts about like what the Barbie movie actually was, but at least at the very least it was marketed entirely as like fun pop stuff. It wasn't exactly that. That's not a that's not a criticism per se, but she, it, the marketing was a lot less uh, spicy, maybe is the way to put it than the movie is. Um,
1: yeah, I I would also say so. It's funny because to most people, I think this is a a weekend of juxtaposition, yes. right? Christopher Nolan making an incredibly serious and portentous biopic, right? Greta Gerwig doing fun, light, poppy, whatever with like you know meta modern stuff with Barbie, right? Like, the, I think what attracted people to that is the is the contrast
0: between the two, right? Like, um, very literally, just a thing I want to point out. Significant portions of Oppenheimer are literally in black and white, and the color palette in Barbie is like off the chain pastels, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Like the and, uh, but, the th- but the thing
1: that I think my 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 read on this was always different, which is that they are a very natural double feature because they are both art tour movies, right? Greta Gerwig. I don't I don't know if people know that Greta Gerwig is like like famous, right? She did Lady Bird, which was a you know kind of awards made a couple of years ago. Did a Little Women, um, you know, the same sort of thing. Both of these were kind of successful, kind of like indie darling or whatever. And this is sort of her, you know, like break. Her, her big break into sort of, like, mainstream, like, filmmaking, basically, right? Where she has, like, a real budget and the power of a studio and a, and a big, big movie star behind her, right? Margot Robbie, obviously, is uh, is a pretty, you know, one of the biggest actresses in the world, obviously. Um, and, and I don't even think Christopher Nolan needs the introduction, right? Like, this guy is going to any, he is a modern-day a tour like in the 70s, right? He is like a Steven Spielberg. He is a, you know, Martin Scorsese. He just happens to be 20 years younger than these guys, right? Um, and it's part of sort of like a modern, you know, um, I don't know, just, just kind of like a tour driven. Uh, b- b- sell right, like in the same way that Quentin Tarantino sells you just because he's directing this picture. I think Christopher Nolan sells people just because he's directing the picture, and I think that that's kind of sort of like true for both of these, right? Is that they're is that they're very unambiguously like auteur movies coming out in honestly? I can't remember the last time. Maybe Dune is what I would say is the last time I can think of an auteur-driven blockbuster film, right? Um,
0: yeah, I think that's so. Accurate.
1: Yeah, uh, and so I I'm sort of not surprised that these made such a natural double feature. Though I will say, for the record, I did not watch them as a double feature because I just I just couldn't get good tickets to either of them. So I had to see them super late at night, which is fine. I actually like going to like the 10 p.m. 11 p.m. showing at the movie theater. I just see it super late at night. Uh, the thing I wanted to ask you before we get into anything is: Did you see um, Oppenheimer and, and IMAX or Dolby or just so? Regular? I saw
0: it in um, Regal, like Regal's like. Premiere format, which is like the big, the, their biggest is not IMAX. Um, okay, uh, I also did not see yeah.
1: it in IMAX, but that was intentional. I saw it in Dolby because Dolby, I think,
0: is better than IMAX. I think, I Do think, you know, what d- Dolby is have a I... uh, d- explain go Go for it. I, I've
1: talked about Dolby before. I have a special theater near my house called the Dolby Theater. They have a couple things that are special. One is that the blacks are blacker, which means that contrast is really insane, um, which makes just the pictures incredible right um and the other thing is for dolby uh the sound is really powerful and dynamic um it'll move throughout the theater um and the speakers are just like bigger or louder right um which ended up being pretty funny with oppenheimer because boy is that a, is that a loud
0: movie I, I, I was gonna say like so, so the, the thing the, the the regal one is called rpx um i don't i can't mm. i can't quickly find exactly what that's supposed to be but um uh, like Tenet, which I saw in actually the same theater, and uh, The Dark Knight, I found the, uh, this is like a purely technical, I found the sound mixing on Oppenheimer to be um, less than ideal, which uh, according, to, according to Christopher Nolan means that the theater isn't properly calibrated, right, that they mix for, for good theaters or whatever, still incredibly aggravating. Um, yeah
1: I loved the sound um, and and the music and everything but I have seen a lot of people I've seen a lot of people complain about the music actually I thought the music was great um but I also think maybe it's like a taste thing because Christopher Nolan and I seem to like this version I guess I would say of like scoring is it's not subtle <laughs> yeah, so I, I will uh, say, so
0: I thought that the the act like the actual sound I thought was very good but the mixing it has the same mixing problem that tenant. And Bane had right, and that I can't always understand what the characters are saying because it feels undermixed compared to the. Uh, oh, the sure. Effects. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I
1: I never had that issue, but I I imagine that is because I was in this special Dolby yeah. theater, right, where the sound is is special. Uh, so yeah, that, I, I
0: that will that say it was sense. better than Ten- Tenet. Was like nigh unintelligible to me half the time. This <laughs> this one was better, but there were moments. Um,
1: you know, I have watched Tenet twice, and I don't think I could tell you anything about that movie fell out of my brain immediately afterwards. I like John, I think his name is John David Washington or whatever, Denzel Washington's kid. I think he's a really talented actor, and I like him as a leading man, but I really don't I like, remember uh, anything about that movie at
0: all. I like, uh, what is he, Jacob Colin, The 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 guy who plays the, the werewolf in the Twilight movies.
1: <laughs> uh...
0: Robert, maybe? Robert Pattinson? Yeah, he yeah that Edward oh, oh, and Batman, obviously. Yeah,
1: okay, okay, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, Barbie didn't matter as much to me. I just saw that in a regular old theater, but I also don't think that, that like I said, I don't think that matters, so... Um, yeah. yeah, no, your know, point I about... Late,
0: I saw Barbie at 10.30 in the morning and Oppenheimer at like 8 at night, so, you know.
1: Um, <laughs> okay. Um, I will say... Oh, wait, hold on. I need to uh, do things. thing. I will say one insane thing... Uh, that I I personally was just so called out by is before I went to go see Barbie, I was just like, you know what? I haven't watched the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League in a while. And I was like halfway through before I went to go see Barbie, and sure enough, there's a fucking line in that movie making fun of guys watching the Snyder cut. <laughs>
0: oh. Yeah, Um just as so before we get into the meat of the movies just real quick i want to say um i don't know what it's out like by you but both of these movies had a half hour of fucking trailers before they started it they started a half hour after their putative show times which is endlessly infuriating to me right like like i have to, to say i minutes.
1: build that in and well, i i used just to arrived to the minutes. theater 20 minutes late
0: <laughs> it used to be 15 minutes and i would have been okay with 15 minutes it's like anyway sorry but uh let's give our pre-spoiler reviews. Why don't you go first? Give me your pre-spoiler thoughts on Oppenheimer and Barbie.
1: Uh I like both of these movies for a variety of different reasons. Um I think both of them have kind of like problems, but you know, and and the problems are fun. The problems are the auteur version, the auteur kind of problems that are fun to talk about and get into and they make the the um you know, they make the film feel like it gives the film, like, texture and uniqueness, right? Um, so, uh, you know, like, the, the the issues that Oppenheimer has are issues that only a Christopher Nolan movie would introduce to Oppenheimer, right? If anybody else shot this movie, it would be way different, and we'll talk about what the, what I would expect those differences to kind of be, but I also think that it would be worse for those differences, even though I also think that those differences kind of are bad for the movie overall, and, and actually, like... Probably, it's, it's sort of like the difference between, like, sanding and, like, rough wood, right? You know, one of these gets sanded down to oblivion by, like, executive notes or whatever. And that's probably the better movie, but it's also the more conventional movie. Um, the other one doesn't get sanded down, is kind of weird and muddled, and, uh, but, it, but it makes it pop. And, you, and, uh, you know, out, out of sort of the background of all of the movies that you watch in a year, right? Um, it makes it very unique, which feels good. Um, the others, the, the same sort of thing I think is also true of Barbie. Um, but in Barbie, I think it's just like sort of, uh, it's sort of uh, like, like, a, like a Mr. Burns. Have you ever seen the episode of The Simpsons where Mr. Burns has so many illnesses that none of them can kill him because they're all too yeah, the door. busy fighting each other with the door. That's what Barbie is. It has so many ideas that it just kind of all of them get stuck in the door. Nothing gets nothing gets through. Um, but I actually think that's sort of in the movie's favor in a way. Um, and uh, if the movie had been
0: sort of um, I guess I would say clearer. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I'm, I'm actually 100% with you on this. This movie uh, Barbie is entirely confused and it's to its benefit because you can interpret it whatever way you want and you can yeah. be as mad or as happy about it as you want to be, right? Yeah, and, and it also sort of just lets some small things
1: that work really well just sort of like pop off screen. Everybody's talking about Ryan Gosling's performance. I also think that about Ryan Gosling's performance. I texted Rachel in the middle of the movie, actually. Um, to, I said, <laughs> I said, oh my god, this, mov- <laughs> this movie is me. Uh, You have to see Barbie just because of Ken. I am Ken. Ken is like an attack on me personally. The energy flows through me.
0: (laughs) I'm just Ken, and I'm enough, and I'm great at doing stuff. Yeah, (laughs) and it's
1: just like, you know, and it's just like... That stuff, I think, works. I think I think that that that's kind of what works about Barbie, even though it doesn't have it, it, it actually, you know, a, a great example of why I like Barbie is the same reason why I like Batman vs. Superman. I think these are spiritually similar films in the sense that they are a tour driven mainstream, you know, like movie budget with just like incredibly, muddled and confused ideas but there are so many of them that that just makes it so interesting and fertile right you know like that's that's sort of what i think
0: (laughs) i think i am with you almost i do think some of the problems with barbie like what i think it's me detecting or the way i read it was like corporate meddling it's like mattel being like you can't actually be this hard on barbie in some ways um we'll get into those specifics once we get into the spoiler section but i am mostly with you um, I thought Oppenheimer was the better movie. I think Barbie might stay with me longer. Um, all things considered, um, uh, but like, like <sighs> I, I think you're right. I think I think the Barbie movie is incredibly fertile for discussion. I think Oppenheimer is too, but mostly for like, like the things textually about Oppenheimer. I think are there's like not as much to talk about in terms of like um, terms of like story beats. I think there's some stuff, but it's not as as big. Um, The bigger, like, you know, both these movies had huge internet discourse, but the latter one is more about kind of like the real world events that Oppenheimer portrays rather than the actual content of the movie um, with a couple of minor exceptions. Um, Yeah, you
1: know, I I do want to say I think Oppenheimer is the better movie, but I also think that part of that is that Barbie is not a movie for a middle aged, you know, white guy, right? Like a 33 year old guy is just like not the target audience for this and sure. I don't think that there are I think the for, for the people for whom Barbie is really going to connect are just like a entirely you know uh, perpendicular to me person right um so it's sort of natural that yes I would I would connect more with with Oppenheimer um, I, see I, but, I don't know yeah. if I
0: agree with you just because like because of Ken right like I think Ken is like like I think it might have been like a mistake and not like in like you know like this was, like, not, like, a bad decision. I think, like, it might have been totally unintentional, but I think Ken does, like, a whole thing in that movie, but I just think... So, I think so, too, but, like, he's a subplot,
1: right? It's kind of like saying, you know, that, like, I don't know, I can't think of a good example for what I would do with, uh, I don't know, it's, it's like saying that, like, the science in Oppenheimer is what you know, it's, it's like what draws you. It's like at the end of the day, the science is pretty secondary to all the other stuff that's that going on. I actually day. I actually
0: did hear that as a criticism on Twitter. It's like they turn, really? they, they they turned a thing that is a, that is a feat of science and engineering into a courtroom drama. And uh, and, and that made it bad. Um,
1: I, so, you, oh, you know what? We can we can d- 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 run down some of these rabbit holes, but let's get to the other. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's, right. a, yeah.
0: a spoiler spoilers for both movies, uh, spoilers for World War Two, I guess, if you don't know what happened there. Um, oh my god! Uh,
1: the World War II discourse is the thing that actually sends me, by the way. But yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it.
0: I mean, this, this is an—it's just an excuse to rehash the same argument that everybody's been having since those, since the against. Spo- I'm, I'm actually fucking seriously saying spoilers for World War Two. We dropped two bombs. We dropped them in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, <laughs> right? Whether or not that was a justified decision has been an argument since it happened, right? And this is just another avenue for that to happen. And I don't think the movie's particularly clear either way on it. Right, like I've seen arguments both both ways, but like you know, I don't think the movie. Yeah, this is my this is my.
1: I don't think the movie cares. I the movie is making a deeper, more profound point, and everybody who is like focusing on the stupid bombs is like falling into well, like a first grade ethics trap that I just like want. It makes me want to shoot myself. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. like you know.
0: <laughs> and, and the movies and the movie is about Oppenheimer more than it is about the actual. Yeah. Bot, exactly.
1: Right. right. Yes. It, you know, like for because first of all, Oppenheimer had very little to do with the actual usage of the bombs, which the movie is honest about, right? That he doesn't even learn about the bombs, like dropping until he listens to the radio broadcast where, where President Truman announces it or whatever, right? Like that the, the that whole set of decisions. But I have so many other issues with this. And the only reason why is because I weirdly am kind of like a, I don't know, like an armchair World War II historian. And I just think so many of these conversations are Fundamentally and irrevocably flawed, right? Like,
0: <sighs> so, so the the scene. So we're, we're past the spoiler mark. I just want to point out that um there is a scene where Oppenheimer goes to speak to Truman, and uh like, uh and uh Truman says, "Don't let that crybaby be in here again." That actually happened. Like, I think yep. the, the the quote is, "Never bring that fucking cretin in here again." He didn't drop <laughs> the bomb. I did. That kind of weepiness makes me sick. Right, like. <laughs>
1: You know what's funny? This is the thing that frustrates me, by the way. Truman didn't drop the bomb, and he was mad about it, right? Those decisions were made essentially before he entered office, right? And he had to explicitly make I think an executive order or some, some sort of like military command to say no one is dropping any other nukes without my express permission because he was so fucking pissed that it all just kind of went along without his like express say so which obviously everyone knows Truman would have dropped the bombs and right. it would have been totally fine but the, this is the thing that people don't understand about like uh, I guess I just have to do this now okay ah uh, the stupid meta ethical thing like this is it a trolley problem is it you know the tr- the trolley problem versions we get we get taught in third grade right oh we were going to invade the invasion was going to cost a million casualties the japanese were so whatever so we dropped the bombs because you know you know uh, 150,000 japanese civilians is better than 750,000 american soldiers or whatever right um that's like the, the the very basic argument about the atomic bombs that's dumb okay but whatever the the a better argument but also still dumb is that japan was Dead, Japan was deadlocked and stubborn because there was a, a set of hardline militarists in the Japanese government and a set of moderates. They were mostly trying to secure a conditional surrender. They wanted to preserve the imperial institution of Japan. Um, they wanted the emperor to still be the emperor. They wanted all of this other sort of stuff and, um, and they just thought that they could hold out for better terms. There was all of this back and forth with the Soviet Union because Japan wasn't at war with the Soviet Union at the time and they were trying to use that as a a means to get the soviet union to broker a peace between them and the united states and at the same time the soviet union was gearing up to enter the war because they wanted to steal back a bunch of land that had been taken from them in like a 1905 war and it's like and this is the complex sort of geopolitics answer right which is basically that japan waited too long and the united states got itchy got an itchy trigger finger and they just fucking dropped the bomb because they needed to force Japan they wanted to force Japan into an unconditional surrender because that's what president roosevelt had promised right he wasn't accepting a conditional surrender from the japanese he was spending he was exce- he was accepting an unconditional surrender they had to force the issue they dropped two bombs to do that this answer is also bad okay but it is the other it is the other answer right the real answer is that the dropping of the bombs was a bureaucratic just Labyrinthian set of decisions that was happening no matter what, because all of this money and force and inertia and momentum was going into what was truly a catastrophic total war that all parties thought that they were in right the true frame of the atomic bombs is not the three months of the geopolitics right it's not the six months of a of a hypothetical invasion right it is the entirety of world war ii where every major power absolutely and totally militarized their entire economies because war is an expected part of that society and all of these Groups of people were going to commit atrocities in the furtherance of their pursuit of total victory in this total war right and that really all the atomic bombs were is a particularly flashy crescendo to a reign of strategic bombing that left a hundred thousand dead from fire bombs in Tokyo right from you know The absolute obliteration of German cities like Hamburg and uh, Dresden. Dresden is the one everyone talks about. Hamburg is actually worse than Dresden, but Dresden is the one everybody talks about. Um, Of, you know, the just the vicious destruction of cities like Nanking, right? Like the Rape of Nanking is a thing, right? The only frame for the atomic bombs is that they are one in a long line of atrocities that got made between 1930, whatever. And 1945, right? And focusing in on them specifically is a gigantic mistake because the real answer is 3% of the entire world died during World War II, right? The entire world population died during World War II. And, you know, 175,000 Japanese civilian casualties are just a tiny percentage of that overall figure, right? And then uh, then (sighs) just a statistic,
0: right? Like the (laughs) Stalin line, right? Like
1: yeah, and so this is why this is why it bothers me. This is a very left wing. This is this is where I get to like this is like a left wing kind of brain dead take about like you know, somebody was a thing that was like, in all three hours of Oppenheimer, there's never a Japanese person on screen. It's like fucking shoot yourself. This movie's not about that, you fucking moron, right? And even if it was you, 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 know, what I, like, you know what I saw?
0: <laughs> I saw Oppenheimer doesn't pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just <laughs> waiting for you to stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's funny. That's funny as fuck. That is funny as fuck. <laughs> oh, my God, no. Holy shit. Oh, Christ. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's my World War II rant about Oppenheimer and the dropping of the atomic of the atomic bombs. I will say that I thought that the, actually of the drama that was that was eked out of that that kind of World War II time period was really was really good and really important. Right. Um, something that also kind of gets sort of muddled and lost is the co- and this is part of what I mean about like the bureaucratic train that was moving. Right. Um, which is that everyone was so fixated on beating the the race to the nuclear bombs with the germans and it was such an insane reversal that the that germany surrendered before the completion of the atomic bombs that it was like well what what do we do like what how are we what are we gonna what are we gonna go for though i will say to be fair the bombs were never meant to drop on japan in 1943 they i think um they decided that the the atomic bombs they were going to be building were going to be dropped on Japan, whether or not, uh, you know, like, Germany was still in the war. Because uh, the idea, essentially, was that it didn't sort of matter. It was such an awesome, you know, it was such an awesome and insanely powerful weapon that you could drop it on whoever, and the, the force impact. of that impact would be known. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's other st- stuff in there, too, I think, like... Um... Oh, I had a point, but I, I think I I think I lost it. Um, the
1: anti-Japanese racism is a pretty common one.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, and then, like, there, there's, again, like you said, arguments. Like, the argument I have always heard is, is less about, like, the raw trolley problem, but, like, that, like, the Japanese are basically unwilling to surrender. They, they, they fought, they, you know, the Okinawans committed mass suicide um, when we took Okinawa um, to avoid surrendering, and there was a real fear that that was going to be the thing that happened um, if we invaded the mainland, all, all that just kind of like stuff, and, and like I, I think I think your view is ultimately correct, right? Like you know, it's it's what ends up happening, right? Like it's like it, it you know something needed to you know, something needed to give and it, and it gave, um, but there was I can't remember, so I won't I won't push it any further, but. Uh. Yeah, no, yeah
1: I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, the movie itself is actually not all that yes. interested in, in this stuff. There are no, you know, there's no cutaways to the war, right? You know, something I did in preparation for this was I watched just some other World War II biopics. Uh, so The Imitation Game is one. Um, and then I also watched Darkest Hour because um, those are two pretty recent. They're both Oscar nominated ones, you know. Um, darkest hour is Gary Oldman doing Winston Churchill. Uh, imitation game is Benedict Cumberbatch doing Ellen Turing. Um, my understanding is that both of these are kind of like bad in a historical accuracy sense, but good in, uh, vibes. Yeah, yeah, vibes, yeah. Good in just like a, like, it, it's the spirit of the history rather than the than anything else, right? The the climax of Darkest Hour is this thing where Winston Churchill gets on a train and he just asks the common people, he takes a train to Parliament instead of taking his car, and he just asks the people he's on the train with whether or not that they, w- they would surrender to Hitler, because this was when he, this is 1939, right before Dunkirk, actually I guess 1940, Um, right around Dunkirk he's going to make that big speech, right, where we'll fight him on the land, we'll fight him on the beaches, all that other stuff. Um, And it's like, a bunch of that stuff is like apocryphal and shit like that. Um, Imitation Game has a bunch of shit that also is sort of apocryphal to kind of create real drama out of what was essentially pretty straightforward... Right? Like, that, there, there there, wasn't a lot of friction in that in that story. People generally did believe in the Enigma machine. There wasn't all of this sort of, like, doubt from the brass. The, you know, it's not like the, the brass came to the barn where the Enigma machine was being made at the time that it was about to spit out its first, like, breaking of the code. It's actually like, well, yeah, this is kind of more procedural than that. Um, you know, there were questions, but there's nothing, you know, nothing direct. Um, there's this whole thing, there's this whole drama about the... Um, whether or not they're going to report on all of the decoded German messages that they're getting, because if the if things start getting uh, found out, right, like if the Germans start getting thwarted, they're going to realize their Enigma is being their Enigma code is being broken, um, and that stuff never that stuff never happened. Um, they just kind of handed they broke the codes and they just handed it off to somebody else, and somebody else made all these other sort of decisions. Um, but anyway, uh, it was. And this is probably why I think Oppenheimer felt so... Had that tactile sense I was talking about before. Um, it is a wildly different biopic than either of those two. And I think if it had been more like those two, right? Focused in much more narrowly on the section of Oppenheimer's life where he is running the Manhattan Project, um, dealing with these kind of... These different personalities, right? Um, maybe, you know, you're getting into a little bit of sort of like the the political drama around, um, you know, his whatever communist sympathies and stuff like that, but you don't you probably don't end up addressing that. I actually think it probably would have been a better movie, right? Um Oppenheimer has a drama problem where once the Trinity test goes off, and the Trinity Test sequence is truly magnificent, yeah, right? Um just like really top tier filmmaking. Um and I have a thing, I'll put a pin in that, I wanna come back to it. But is this a Josh Peck thing? Uh, or- yes. Oh, so weird. <laughs> the, the 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 Trinity test would be the climax of a regular movie, and it would make so much more sense, right? Here's a scientist. He's working really hard to do a science problem. He these are the problems to his science problem that he needs to overcome, and and the super smart guys that he is working with in order to overcome it. They do the Trinity test goes off at the last minute at five a.m. in the morning, right before the Potsdam Peace Conference or whatever. We send off our telegram to you know harry truman and movie 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 ends right all of this other stuff with the framing device and the courtroom and his this thing with his security clearance and the political maneuvering between him and straws it's just like that is actually sort of a dramatic lowering of the stakes right it's actually much less important and much less important feeling than what does end up happening in actual in actual plot terms but is in that stuff that you get the meta you know sort of the meta commentary and a complete change of the themes which is that wow science is hard to you know the really complex relationship between you know this man speech right the political process his maneuvering with other people in you know in the world right the the moral weight that he feels for you know, being the, the, the movie as a Prometheus metaphor for being the Prometheus, right, who brings nuclei, nuclear fire, right, to the world, all this other sort of stuff. All of that comes in the framing device. And I think that's how the framing device sort of earns itself. And Oppenheimer is still a good movie, um, even if it is worse on a truly plot level because The Last Hour is harder to get, like, invested in. Because really, at the end of the day, it's sort of like his petty personal drama with this guy he doesn't like. You yeah, know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think I get you. I also think it's what makes it special. Like, uh, to your point, right? Like, it's what makes it, it makes it a special movie. It's that it's not just about, like, you know, the dropping of the bomb, right? Um, Like, I think, like, the side plot about him and his, like, essentially his love life, I guess, is the easiest way to put it. Like, the, that whole thing is, like, very kind of underserved plot-wise, obviously, at least some striking. Like, I feel like the entire plot line was there to justify the scene where he's sitting at the, you know... The, the kangaroo courtroom table and um, the the jean is uh is like sitting on him naked and looking at his wife right like that is the entire justification for that plotline i think cuz like it's otherwise like it's otherwise kind of like why is it here right like because um, it doesn't really like tent seem to have like all that all that much relevance to what's what's happening other than you know i don't know she was a communist so it mattered right like i don't know um, but yes, I, I, I generally, I, I generally agree with you. I, I, I found, I found like that, that court, like that courtroom stuff, like compelling. But I, I agree with you that the stakes are much less important there. But I think it's also part of the point, right? Like that is kind of like the explicit, like at, at the end is like, you know, with the aides talking to uh, an unconfirmed, um, you know, uh, a Lewis Strauss um, is being like, you know, maybe they were talking about something more important than you. Right? Like, um, and that, that is true, right? Like, that, I think that's, like, the, the, the point, right? Like, is that, like, you know, this, this immediately devolves. In, and to your point about, like, the actual bomb dropping, right? Like, this is bureaucracy and it immediately devolved into politics instead of anybody reckoning with the fact, like, you know, truly reckoning with, like, you know, the force that's been unleashed upon the world, which is just, is you know, an interesting thing to think about.
1: I actually, the, the thing that I think carries... A lot of this stuff for me is I really appreciated the 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 sort of um, I guess I want to say like the comment on petty reductive thinking, right? the The villain in the movie maybe maybe this is just me. The villain in the movie is sort of like ignorance, right? It is sort of the the confirmation bias that that egotistical men have, right? And the and the 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 ease with which things become so easily reduced to kind of like ontological whatever, right? And the thing about the final conversation that he had with Einstein that I thought was so profound is that they were just like kind of having a realer, more substantial conversation than any of these other conversations that we had seen, right? Um, in the courtroom specifically, right? right? Uh, because the thing about the courtroom that I thought was really... F- there was this part where he's drawing a distinction between being opposed to assigning the resources in an atomic weapons program to the hydrogen to the theoretical hydrogen bomb versus the practical sort of atomic fission bombs, right? Obviously, we would all know that a hydrogen bomb is more powerful than fission bombs and like the correct thing to do is to go for the hydrogen bombs or whatever, but like the point that the prosecutor who isn't even a prosecutor in that in that room was making was that you didn't support us working on the hydrogen bomb right and he's like no i'm i supported putting our resources here not there it's a very different thing but i feel like i'm constantly sort of surrounded by these sorts of um you know attempts to reduce things down to this very like core basic essentialist level uh, which is what I which is something I really liked what, right? what's, what's,
0: uh, what's the tweet it's like people people on this app will you know you'll say you like pancakes and so it's this and so, so you hate waffles, like, no, I didn't say that, bitch. that's a <laughs> whole new sentence, right? Like, it's just the same kind of thing, right? Like, yeah, no, I'm, like, I think the court framing is part of that, right? It's a bunch of performance nonsense. And the continued insistent, the continued reminder, this isn't even a real court proceeding, right? This is, like, this is a explicitly kangaroo court, and they draw the parallel between that and the Senate confirmation hearing, Right, like none of it actually matters. It's all like puffery and buffoonery. I think, I think, I think you've nailed it on that on, on the head there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the best part of that is Emily Blunt going back and forth with the prosecutor, uh, just kind of like making a fool out of him, even though it doesn't matter, right? Like you know, like it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. But she's just sort of effortlessly picks apart the dog shit arguments that he's kind of like making around trying to connect Oppenheimer to, you know, like these communist ties in the middle of like McCarthyism. Right. Um, And using that as like a pretense to get rid of his security clearance. But the thing that's profound about the movie is that Oppenheimer actually sort of in a philosophical sense wants to get rid of his security clearance. Right. There's this question. Why don't you fight? That is implicitly answered because he fucking hates himself for creating this weapon, right, he, that he feels like will doom the world. Um, which, on one hand, there is a part of me that, I, I have like, I guess I have complex international relationships philosophy about the atomic bombs, right? I think Oppenheimer is right in the beginning of the movie when he says that this will ulti- This is a weapon of peace that will ultimately, you know, bring an end to warfare, which I think is true and borne out by history, right? But this is not a movie about what is true and borne out by history. This is a movie about what Oppenheimer himself felt like, right? And obviously he felt awful, right? For introducing kind of the atomic age to the world, which to be fair, right? Like obviously Robert Oppenheimer doesn't know that the Soviet Union is going to crumble, that there never would be nuclear war, right? That the last 80 years have been the most kind of the most years of of consecutive peace, right? That the world has ever that the world has ever seen and that actually the advent of nuclear weapons has pretty definitively kind of put a stop to the level of warfare that the world was in fact kind of going towards and teetering off a cliff, right? With uh um World with II. World Wars 1 and 2, right? Where which like I like I said before, obviously the popular conception of World War 2 is that it is, you know, an ontological good versus evil fight, freedom versus tyranny, you know, uh democracy versus authoritarianism. All that stuff is actually pretty true or whatever, but the reality is it was a brutal bloodbath from all sides that included quite literal like plans for, you know, like the Nazis had plans To not just commit genocide against, you know, German Jews, but when Operation Barbarossa was supposed to complete and they were going to take control of the Soviet Union, the idea was that they were going to genocide basically all of the Slavic people and the Russian motherland was going to become the new kind of German fatherland for for the Volk, right? Um, Which is like... An insane thing to think about in the context of warfare, and this is a routine thought that happens in the context of like World War ii Right. Yeah, I mean
0: humans like, like you know, the other side of this too is like, you know, like you said, the freedom versus versus tyranny thing, that's mostly true, but like, you know, America Curious, look up a case called Buck v. Bell. America was pretty big on eugenics for a long time, right? (laughs) There's an argument that, like, Hitler's fascism gets its eugenics from American progressivism rather than from inherent fascism because, like, Mussolini's fascism, which is arguably, like, the first fascism, isn't very eugenicist, right? Like, Mm -hmm. there was, like, a disproportionate number of Jews in Mussolini's fascist movement, which is fucking wild (laughs) to think about, right? Um, You know. But, yes, the history is more complicated than, uh, you know, than, than anybody ever wants it to be, right? But I, I Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. This is actually a Johns Hopkins thing because uh, you know about the IR program, right? Yeah, like yeah. The, Hopkins has like a really important IR program. One of the professors at Hopkins who I took a class from is the guy who essentially codified this, this sort of model of looking at the world. And I can't remember even what it's called. But basically the thing was that humans actually have a pretty innate social barrier for the amount of war they are willing to sort of stomach, right? Humans, which is to say, humans are pretty willing to conquer. They're not super willing to, like, eradicate in right. most scenarios, right? The the level of large-scale eradications that were seen in World War II and some other times in histories, right, where you would say, like, for instance, uh, like conquistadors, right, um, or something kind of along those sorts of lines, right, like, those are pretty uncommon given the way that People tend to wage war on one another and what what it comes down to is the capacity for destructions of the weapons that they have right and um, and he draws this distinction between you know cavemen tribes, a stick, right you're talking about dozens of people uh, a pointed stick is actually an incredibly deadly weapon. you have no medicine, you have no you know your your population is whatever. so just coming out of a coming out of a, a, a skirmish with one or two people wounded is like that could be 5% of your tribe right which is which is a huge set of if we if we said there were 5% casualties in a modern war that would be ungodly no one could could fathom that right um and then this as the as the capacity for violence increases right to gunpowder weapons right um to cannons you know is obviously like a big step up cavalry is a big step up right when people are using horseback to kind of like run down whole you know like regiments of men or whatever right the you know the idea is that you are never fighting to eradicate your opponent you're fighting to conquer your opponent right to conquer and assimilate this is why the roman empire this is like the roman empires kind of thing that's that sort of stuff and what he talks about is the ultimate version of this is nuclear nuclear weapons, right? Um, nuclear weapons are you you can have wars like the Iraq War was at the time what he used. Um, you can have uh, you can have wars like the Iraq War, which is a conventional war without nuclear nuclear weapons, because ultimately that's about territory and ideology and resources, all this other sort of stuff. Um, but that nuclear war is an incredibly hard thing for someone. To stomach or engage in because of how in history you know advances like this are are sort of seen anyway i don't know that's like a little ir lesson or whatever but like i said what oppenheimer says earlier in the movie that he thinks that the nuclear bomb will bring an end to war he's probably correct in actual ir terms
0: yeah i mean and just to uh just to like give him a little bit of credit um you know we did have a couple brushes with you know there's like the famous like um what like the 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 time that like essentially a cloud i think it was like pinged as like a, a missile being launched and like some russian i think it's like names like like we know his name i don't know why but like he like he looked at it as like i'm not willing to end the world over this and like didn't but like that was like the closest yeah. we probably came to writing and there were other close calls too right so it's not like it's it's not like he like oppenheimer's view was totally you know his later view was totally unjustified but yes um, I agree with you. The fact that we were sitting here talking about this movie and this movie got made is testament to the fact that, you know, the world has not been eliminated yet, right? Like, um... Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, it's pretty good. I like the world not being eliminated. Me
0: too. <laughs> uh, we look- um, I thought the other big
1: standout thing for Oppenheimer were the performances. Basically, everybody did a really insanely good job, um, including a number of actors who are very good and recognizable being cast in character actor parts, and I, it is making me think, it's reminding me of Brad Pitt in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Uh, which is a movie I famously loved, I think it was maybe my movie of that year I really loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, Brad Pitt was cast as a character actor in that, um, he was not sort of the leading man, uh, doing doing sort of leading man stuff, that was Leonardo DiCaprio obviously, um, and I, this movie is full of performances like that, right? Uh, Gary Oldman is Harry Truman, <laughs> T- truly loathsome performance, right? Harry Truman being a complete asshole to Robert Oppenheimer, right? Um, you know, uh, uh, Alden Ehrenreich, right? The the Han Solo guy, right? Um, the guy was, who plays was the supportive.
0: The guy who plays Huey in the boys is one of the scientists too. He's the guy who plays the bongos. Um, yep. Uh,
1: my favorite character in the movie was Professor Lawrence, Josh Hutchinson, or Josh Hutchinson, Josh, Josh Hartnett, uh, who, you know, Hollywood heartthrob from like 20 years ago, coming out of the woodwork to play, uh, uh, to play Lawrence, you know, the the right wing sort of friend of Oppenheimer, who is sort of the only friend of Oppenheimer to actually like, have his back and refuse to testify. In a moment that I was just like, yeah, like you know, um the guy who brought him into the project in the first place. um I don't know. I just, I, I also just love yeah, Josh Hartnett. What a,
0: I, what a great guy. I love Kenneth Branna as uh, Niels Bohr. Like I thought, like oh yes. Like I was, just, I was staring at him and was like, what do I know him from? And then my, my girlfriend was like, he was the guy with the mustache in Murder on the or you know in in uh, Murder on the Orient Express. I'm like oh uh, so, yeah.
1: Um, Yeah, the guy from uh, the Zack Snyder movie, Army of Thieves, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Army of Zom... Wait, what is that? What is that movie called? um, called Army of the Dead. He's the German safecracker in Army of the Dead. He plays Heisenberg, uh, the German guy, just one scene, but he kills it, right? There's so many of these. There's so many of these just, like, you know, perform... Matt Damon, actually, is maybe actually also my other favorite, uh, playing Leslie... um, uh, Leslie Groves, the general who's in charge of the, mat- the, the Manhattan Project, um, and he is a true, like, he's another guy who is, like, true and has integrity um, and just, like, they're sort of romance <laughs> in the movie is also is also very it's like also very good and very fun to, to watch. I don't know. There's just like so many yeah, of these. David Dust
0: um, playing the character that David Muslim always plays when he's not <laughs> he's playing the main yeah. character. he's like, kinda of like grimy, like wormy little dude where he's like um
1: Um Dane DeHaan, as uh, I can't remember what his name is, uh, but like one of the kind of conspirators in Oppenheimer, uh, against Oppenheimer, Kenneth Nichols, right? Um, Was also great. Oh, Colin Hanks was another good one. He comes in for that one scene as that security advisor, Pash, and you're cutting between what Groves is saying and. Oppenheimer talking to Pash and he just like doesn't blink and he just like has this incredibly intense glare and, and, uh, and Grubbs is like, this is a guy who, w- who fought or his dad, his, his dad literally killed communists, right? Like don't talk to him, right? Like all of that stuff is, ah, so good.
0: Yeah, no, I, w- I would absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Well acted. Sound design was great. Like when they, when they dropped the bomb, if you, haven't, you know, if you haven't seen it if you're still watching this, you know, like, you know, everybody expecting a boom, and it's just whispers for, like, a good minute, maybe two, before they, like, have the boom cut in. I thought that was, like, fantastic. Um,
1: yeah, there was a lot of that, uh, you know, like, cross-mixing, right? Yeah. So, for instance, in the scene in the gymnasium, after they do it, and everyone is cheering for Oppenheimer, and he's just like, oh, fuck, what have I done, right? You can hear the stomping of their feet, right? Um, but you don't you can't hear their clapping, right? Which is a really great effect. It's like, super clever right because it's so it's so disconcerting to be watching people clapping but there's no clapping but it's not like there's no sound right you know like you you understand what it's like when you're seeing something there's no sound but there is sound from their feet and you're watching their feet and so it's like both of those things happening at the same time kind of like butting heads against each other is just i don't know really clever filmmaking in my
0: opinion there was a moment where like during he's making that speech where it cuts out and um and like it, it, it goes from Cheers to just like a scream, um, which I thought was like like that that whole that whole bit where he's like reckoning with what has happened, um, you know, is uh, I think I think pretty great. You missed your opportunity to talk about Josh Peck. Do you want to say something about Josh Peck? Oh yeah, let's
1: talk about Josh Peck. Okay, one of the fucking actors in this film who, to be fair, does a fine job. His name is Josh Peck. <sighs> Josh Peck is known for the late 2000s television show Drake and Josh and I guess I didn't even like by the time Drake and Josh was like out I wasn't even watching like Nickelodeon anymore you know what I mean like we were in high school I was like a junior it, high it was I think it was like
0: right on the cusp because I remember watching, like, some of the early episodes. Um,
1: yeah, well, so the thing with me is that my little sister would watch it, okay. right? So if I was, like, at my mom's house, you know, my, my my little sister's watching TV, you know, she'd be watching an episode of, like, Drake and Josh. And it is just, like, the most hokey sitcom, you know, like, Nickelodeon sitcom. This is the era of iCarly, you know, the era of Victorious, all this other sort of stuff. <sighs> And Christopher Nolan is just the biggest troll in the fucking world because in the build up to the Trinity test, right? They have enough they have enough physical material for three bombs essentially. One of them they are using as what is called in what's called the Trinity test, which is, you know, does this mechanism work? Can I detonate a nuclear bomb? Yes or yes or no, right? And uh, it's raining. Right, which is an incredibly rare thing. It's obviously the New Mexico desert. They're doing this. Um, it's it's raining and. Um uh, but Oppenheimer is like, but they need to get it in by the next day. And Oppenheimer's like, it's going to break by morning. I know it. Trust me. I know this desert or whatever. There's all of this tension. You know, you see these different places. There's the bunker. There's the place a couple miles away where all of the people are watching. People are wearing, you know, these different you know, things. There's a guy who just like slathers his face in sunscreen. Um, all this other sort of stuff. And the person that they put on the big console with a huge red button with his hand shaking because oh my God, I'm about to detonate a nuclear device is Josh Peck? Of Drake and Josh, it's just like I, I, I don't know how to handle that. It's like if Steve from Blues Clues just like was included in this in this movie in like a pivotal scene, right? Like imagine I didn't even know. i I can't think of a more of a more tense like movie moment where it would be ruined by some bit actor showing up and just being like, what the fuck? Why is you know Carlton from the from the yes, Fresh Friends, Prince yeah, here? Yeah, you works. know what I mean? It's just like holy fuck.
0: Yeah, why is um, Napoleon Dynamite here? <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, exactly right.
1: Like one of these guys who's just like you know I don't know maybe maybe I'm wrong maybe Josh Peck has been
0: <sighs> You're doing better than Drake who got su- accused of sexual assault and like participates in Ethereum drops now
1: that's true yeah he is doing better than drake bell um uh i don't know i guess he did vine for a while it's just like you know what i mean he's he is not like chris pratt who ascended to become a true movie star right um like there is an alternate version of the world where he never makes that kind of move and then fucking andy dwyer from parks and rec shows up and you're like what what is he doing here right um it was, that was just i don't know it's just like the weirdest that's just like the weirdest thing
0: yeah, I'm I'm looking at uh at his IMDb, and uh, he's mostly been in uh he's in the iCarly reboot, he's in Ohio, How I Met Your Father, and he plays Turner in Turner and Hooch. You know, like the re- the Turner and Hooch reboot. So you know. Wow, that's the way it goes. Uh, so you're right, you know. Um, but yeah, um. What is How I Met... Well, you know what? I'm just not even going to worry about yeah. it. Yeah, I assume it's a follow-up to How I Met Your Mother. Um, yeah. But, you know. Is that enough about Oppenheimer? Should we move over to Barbie? Uh, yeah, I guess
1: so. Uh, yeah, do I have any final thoughts on it? I don't know. There's some other filmmaking stuff in here that I think is, is great. Uh, the, ba- the bounce between black and white and color, I think, is really good. Um, uh. I sort of had this effect ruined for me because Christopher Nolan explained it in, like, an interview. Uh, but basically the idea is that everything that is color is subjective to Oppenheimer's experience, um, which is what allows for these kind of surreal flights of fancy that would end up happening, right? Like, the the thing with the sound I was talking about, um, or, like, um, there are also times where just other surreal... Like, like, Florence Pugh fucking him on the chair in the trial thing basically right See the other thing it is subjective reality kind of like in a darren aronofsky film it is not objective reality uh like in a, tr- a regular film i thought that that was a really cool interplay i don't know if i would have picked up on that outside of getting the explanation firsthand but whatever i read the tweet so that's that's where i'm at
0: yeah no i mean it, it seemed like the uh the black and white stuff focused more on like like i would have if you had told me to like pick it out i would have said like lewis you know, black and white is Lewis Strauss and his like petty concerns, petty political concerns, whereas like the color is Oppenheimer and his more like his his bigger concerns, right? His uh, his, his more wanted concerns. But
1: do you do you subscribe to bigger like political sort of uh, readings of the movie? Right? I've seen a lot of people make like this is uh this is a movie about trumpism and you know uh, contemporary american politics and on one hand i actually sort of think that there's more to that i feel like pe- i guess i'm innately skeptical to that claim i think people say that about fucking everything and it bothers me it's dumb shut the fuck up not everything is about that right but also this is a particularly uh I don't know. It just it does seem sort of like there is a lot that it's talking about, and I could make a lot of parallels to modern politics. I don't really know how I fall on that one, yeah. but I just figured i had to ask.
0: Um, so the only thing that, that popped into my head while I was watching it, um, is there is a lot in here about like cooperating with Russia, and a lot about the danger of nuclear war. And so my mind was naturally drawn to kind of like the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine. But I wouldn't say that I thought the movie was saying anything in particular about that conflict. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, that conflict probably predates, right, uh, you know, no the filming. I'm sorry, the film or predates is, the con- yeah, this yeah, conflict yeah. by quite a lot, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah. I, th- I, I, there's this thing about, like, I don't know. Th- there's something I want to, there's, like, some sort of, like, point, I guess, I want to make about, like, the, superfluous is kind of the wrong word. But just kind of like I don't know, there's like petty, like just like the petty politics. Yeah, the, the, um, the raw partisan
0: of, hackery almost. Right, like I, I could buy, yeah, buy yes, that. Like, yeah, You know, like modern politics has an air of like total insincerity. People pick up and discard beliefs as benefits them power wise, and like this movie is speaking is that people consumed by that will not think about the larger ramifications. And I could see, I could see that, but I also don't think that's particularly explicit or necessary right like i think i think that's kind of a timeless message the fact that it maybe has a little bit more applicability nowadays because of our current political climate i think is ultimately uh, you know yeah my really other thing over.
1: for this is that christopher nolan is fucking british he's not he's not american i i think this happens all the time people assume every you're know, like which is the other thing right like people assume everything is about you know like america or whatever but i just kind of sit here and i'm just like buddy i think he cares a lot more about you know whatever like I don't know, Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. I guess Boris Johnson isn't Prime Minister anymore, but uh, then he cares about, right, you know, like like American politics, but yeah. who knows?
0: True, true. All right, well, let's move on to uh, the, the second part of our double feature, Barbie. Um, what, <laughs> do, what do you want to... So the, the thing I want to talk about here... Is because this, sure. is, cause this is kind of like to link the political to the political. Is this okay? Take I mostly saw on Twitter, and I think, is kind of like so. This is what we talked about this in the pre segment. Movie's kind of confused, it's kind of muddled. There are some things that are a mess, right? Like, you know, um, movie arguably has a very pro feminist message, however, at the end of the movie, I thought they were going to be like, Welcome to the board, Mrs. like protagonist, and it's like, No, turns out the board members were good all along, right? They like, you no. Know, just fucking weirdness, like what was it? They go to their way to show that, like, Bill Farrell isn't actually just concerned about money, he's a pretty decent dude. He acts like as kind of like backwards as he might be, he actually legitimately seems to care about like girls being inspired by Barbie. This is why he doesn't just sell Ken's macho casa, right? He actually roller skates to Barbie World to like save Barbie, right? Um, but then at the end, he's like, no, that's a stupid idea. It won't make money. And then somebody tells him it will make money. He's like, okay, it'll make money. And then like, then they don't like give her, like, I assumed they were gonna be like, hey, welcome to the board, Mrs. Woman. That way you can be on the board. It's like, no, um, that was me thinking that Mattel was like, don't slander us too hard. Right. Like, um, uh, but the thing I want to talk about, the thing, uh, is just like very basic Marxist class, co- class consciousness interpretation of the struggle of Ken against the Barbies. Right, um, like a very plain reading of this is Ken is the oppressed proletariat revolting against the bourgeois barbies, right? And he succeeds in the revolution, and then the bourgeois <laughs> proceeds to turn the proletariat against itself in a petty squabble, and then reassert power in like what is effectively election trickery in a way that's like, like, it's not the most solid theory, but like, um the main character's daughter calls Barbie a fascist. And it's basically like fascist machinations to, like, you know, re oppress the, the oppressed. And, I, like, I, you know, obviously the movie doesn't want you to think that, right? The movie tries to do, like, a heighten the contradictions thing, which kind of, like, in my opinion, falls flat and also is, like, way too in the weeds for your average viewer to pick up on. But, like, I think a very plain Marxist reading of that supports that, supports that kind of theory. Uh...
1: Man, I don't even know what to say. That's kind of true.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? Like-
1: okay, the one thing I would say, I I don't think that this is a true Marxist critique, because, like, like, Marxist critical theory is more about, like, a, the construction of a work like this m- rather than it is the I- actual structure, right? Okay. Um, the inherent the inherent nature of a proletariat revolution, right? I, I don't think what makes it specifically in the field of, of what I would call marxist critical theory but i do think that it is essentially mar- like marxism right on screen right um which is i don't know it's complicated to deal with yeah no
0: uh, i mean like yeah, you know look, okay if, if, ken, yeah. if ken had walked into the library and picked up a copy of das copy the movie would have still made sense right like yeah. Of become- <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah exactly yeah what i mean to say is that like like Marxist cultural theory is built around like the construction of movies in general right and about like you know cultural hege- sure. hegemony right and the idea that a an american mega corporation is funding this movie as a you know uh i don't know i guess i would say like darkly modern. i metamodernist, do you know what metamodernism is uh,
0: yes. Yes.
1: Uh, yeah. It's like uh, I I I want to say postmodern, but it is not postmodern because yeah. postmodern is is ironic. Meta modern is enthusiastic and sincere. Right. Uh, Meta modern is sort of like. It is... Oh, I hate it's, this it's so like much. It's like so post, so
0: post-modernism, right? Like, yeah,
1: it is, it, yeah, exactly. It post-postmodernism. You have modernism, sim- right? Very sincere. We're at the end of history, right? We're, we're the, This is the best humanity has ever been, right? Very serious, right? Post-modernism is actually everything sucks. Truth is relative. Very cynical. If you think about it, profession is ev- everywhere, right? Very cynical, yeah. Um, irony is very common in, in post-modernism. Um, and the idea of meta modernism is you're kind of combining that postmodernist kind of critique of of the import of things but also with a kind of earnest sincerity that just sort of celebrates the absurdism of it or whatever that you know like who, who cares I don't give a fuck that truth is relative Pretty colors. Yeah. What, what's the, like, what's yeah the, like,
0: again, it's the tweet. is like you know, it's like millennial millennial nihilist. Nothing matters. It's like Gen Z nihilist, and it's like you know, they ride skateboarder. Nothing matters, right? Like. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's kind of it. Yeah. So anyway, you know, like Bobby is like a you know like a better modern whatever, um, and uh, I guess. One of the other things about metamodernism is that even just sort of the structure of everything gets called into question, which includes the structure of something like an allegory. Right? Um, there is this idea in my head that maybe Barbie is not supposed to be allegorical in the way that I think it is. Uh, my initial thought for for Barbie when I was when I was watching it was I was like, oh, I understand. Barbie is sort of this um, symbolic interpretation of the you know sort of like perfect modern realized woman right and um and the woman that she's tied to this mother is the kind of realization that no one can be everything she has this whole big speech where she's like you have to be this but you can't be that you have to be this but you can't be that and it's like the contradictory nature of you know um the idea that uh, this version of feminism that people are living in this like kind of girl let's call it girl, girl boss feminism, feminism. yeah yeah. Um, yeah that that these women are dealing with expects too much of them and maybe it's just okay to like be sad and be nothing and not have to worry about any anything. I would say that's probably the point, and we at which point we would say this movie is pretty allegorical, right? Um, because Barbie is supposed to map so cleanly onto you know kind of this thing. Um, It also supports the allegory that Ken is maybe supposed to be like a a map onto modern kind of like post-feminist masculinity. Um, There's this whole thing in there, which I think is real, which talks about sort of like the loneliness that comes in being, uh, you know, like a like a like a modern man. Right. Right. you know, which is which is a real thing, right? People uh, you, people have studied this, right? And just sort of the idea that men are much less connected uh, to one another and to their partners than they used to be. And part of this is about sort of like the liberation theory behind feminism, where, you know, f- if women are no longer defined by their roles as wives and mothers, no longer t- defined by the partnership with a man, right? That relationship erodes in order to give women sort of the freedom to explore all of these other sort of things that culture does, that's good, that's feminist, that's equality, but it also sort of leaves men who otherwise used to attach themselves to women as their core emotional relationship in the dust, right? I kind of feel like there's that's that's what we're going for with Ken. But, like, it doesn't actually have anything real to say or offer or comment on besides just this exists and is kind of magically solved without any... Yep. Uh, doesn't actually... like. It, on the purely on the movies terms, right, it pits Asian Ken and blonde Ken, right, against one another, and they go through a whole dance number, and then they're friends. And it doesn't explain why. It doesn't offer anything. There's no reason for that to have happened. It's just sort of narrative sleight of hand, right? Um, and this is the weakness, and this is the thing that I think is bad about, uh, like, Ken in in the movie, right? Um, where it doesn't actually... It's not actually saying anything outside of just sort of highlighting the the gender issue for men as typified by Ken in this movie.
0: Yeah, I, I, th- I think similarly, right, like... I think part of the issue is, like, the movie, like... The... The women brainwashed in the kingdom are happy as far as we can see and the movie just leaves it to us to assume right that like you're to take on face that it's bad and I, I'm mostly fine with that but like it doesn't is kind of like lets it go right like you know like you know if if I wanted to like make like a like a, a true kind of like angry like like there's a, a a version of this where it's like you know and the beta Allen undermines the alpha ken right <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it, because in an attempt to gain status for himself by re enabling the what what's what's the word that they you know like the, the 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 what's what's there's a word that gets used for like like the kind of like female the the female centric kind of argument here we talked about this before and maybe we call it the long house right like which is a term that neither of us understands very well but like you know um, you know like yeah
1: I mean I I think uh, so for instance Ben Shapiro is really angry about yeah. this movie um, and I imagine a lot of conservatives are going to be um, just because I I I think I'm weirdly sympathetic to if I, if I was a conservative which obviously I'm not. But I would actually kind of be sympathetic to them being angry at this movie, not out of a um, I don't know. I actually I don't want to speak for Ben Shapiro, and I'm sure he's making a worse argument than I am about to make. So maybe I maybe I do think he's probably being dumb. But I do think that there is a thing in the movie which sort of equates this idea of um, kind of like traditional femininity with like the brainwashing, right? Yeah. Which is which is I think kind of im the, the point of feminism is not to say that being a housewife is bad. The point of feminism is to say that you can be more than just a housewife, right? Um, and so there's this idea that, like, it's bad when the women kind of get infected with the patriarchy and brainwashed by chem or whatever else on its face, right, to the exclusion of that kind of, you know... Um, I don't know, that kind of expression of their femininity, but probably a more accurate version would have included some of the women saying, you know what? I actually really like my Ken, and I like that stupid song that he sings to me on the guitar, and I'm happy in that version of reality. Do you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: no, and and there's also like, I don't, I mean, I think there's people that are going to be angry because the movie is kind of like, I don't think it argues them particularly well, but it has like, a very open politics, the one that kind of like chafed me, and this is just because of a clear misunderstanding of what was at stake in Citizens United, but the opening scene where the Barbie Supreme <laughs> Court, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's just like, just, like that irked me just because it was like, openly, you know, openly contemporarily political in a way that I thought just like fundamentally misunderstood the issue that they were getting at, but like, you know, that's just the thing that chafes me because it chafes me, right? Like, yep. um, And I could see a lot of but you know, I think also to 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 a point that we came that we got to earlier like, it's not necessarily for two middle aged white guys, right like yeah this is this is part of my thing with the
1: Ken stuff. Sure, the movie doesn't have answers and it plays this game of narrative sleight of hand, right Ken and the other Ken have a dance number. they're friends now it's not really explained and the explanation to that question is what matters, right? What is the solution, in other words, to the problem of Male loneliness in in gender in gender terms, but really what that's an argument for is a Ken movie, right? Yeah. This is ultimately a subplot in the Barbie movie to set up an antagonistic force that the Barbies need to kind of do a feminism essentially to overcome which i which that's fair enough right like the whole bit about them sort of like deprogramming the guys or whatever and all this stuff i thought all that stuff was legitimately funny and like good right you know like i i'm i'm on board with all that piece of the puzzle so really the thing that i'm angry about is that the movie is not more targeted to an issue that i think it doesn't answer very well when the real answer is you know, in the same way I said this about Batman v Superman, sometimes just raising the question is interestingly enough. You don't have to have answers for everything, right? Yeah. So I do want to make that part clear.
0: Yeah, no, I think I'm I i think I'm with you on most of that. Um, yeah, no, I, I also think that, I think part of the problem with the movie is that I don't think it really answers a lot of questions very well. Like, I, yeah. like, I don't, like, you know, um, I don't think it particularly answers, like, the the barbie side of the question super well either right it's like kind of ends on like a pinocchio Aesop, but like kind of right like um what was the other thing i was gonna say Uh, like yeah go on
1: i think it ends on a joke to sidestep to do the same thing to sidestep putting a real answer to okay we have followed barbie as the main character she's gone through all this existential drama and angst what is our conclusion here there's some vague stuff about sort of freedom in the sense, which is true. She is free. She's in the human world and is has truly become a human, right? Um, but the the movie ends on the joke, I think, because it doesn't have a real poignant end. There is no, There's nothing profound there. It just kind of is funny and you laugh and you don't think about how it actually is kind of an unsatisfying answer.
0: Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. Um, yeah. I've, I've heard this movie described as Fight Club for Women, and that kind of resonates with me on a basic level. Like,
1: well, oh, but, but there's oh, uh, Fight Club for I mean, my thing about Fight Club is a, is a poster child for sort of um, how, not sarcastic, not sardonic, Called satire for like the satire paradox, right? Where people empathize with what is being satirical, right? Tyler Durden is explicitly the bad guy in Fight Club, but people think he's cool and Chad and Alpha and all this other sort of like dumbass shit. And I, I, is Barbie satirical on that level? I don't think because it's not it's not satire. It is a embrace and celebration of feminism. It's not a satire against sure. feminism,
0: right? Yeah. No, I I see that. But, like, I also don't think the text of Fight Club is as straightforward as, as you as you put it out right like at the end of the day that like you blow up the the buildings right like you know i get i think there's something about like wrestling with what it means to be you know your particular person right like wrestling and wrestling with what your what your nature is like what your instincts tell you to do versus like or versus what society tells you to do that kind of thing i think that's the kind of tri- spirit it's meant in
1: yeah um, mm, well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess I have complicated things about Fight Club. Part of this is that I like Chuck Palahniuk, and I've re- read a lot of his books, and I have read Fight Club itself. And the Fight Club book ends in a different way than the Fight Club movie. Um, in the Fight Club movie, he um, it just ends with those credit card, you know, company buildings coming down in this sort of like blatant act of terrorism. Um, but in the book. Uh, The ending of the book is that he shoots out part of his brainstem. He shoots out the part of his brainstem that is Tyler Durden. um, And he's, like, paralyzed or whatever. Uh, But he's in the hospital. And he's finally free of Tyler Durden's influence. Um, But when he's in the hospital, a male nurse comes up to him. um, And because he's, like, paralyzed or whatever else and he can't do anything else, uh, the male nurse talks about how, like, you know don't worry, sir, Tyler Durden's going to like live on in the rest of us. And it's kind of like a tragic ending, right? He thinks he has solved this problem for himself, but all he's really done is paralyzed himself, and Tyler Durden has spread like a mind virus to all these other sorts of people, right? I don't think that... That obviously doesn't come across as strongly in the movie version. Um, I, But I, I don't know. I guess I think that in the movie... Um, I don't know. I, I want to say that that ending is kind of comedic and tragic at the same time, right? That all the all of the fighting he does to stop Tyler from doing this thing fails, but maybe you're right. I don't know. Yeah. It, maybe. Yeah. You know. I, th- I think really at the end of the day, the satire paradox is a real thing, and it's tough. And maybe that's just the reality yeah, for I mean, it, for Fight Club and Barbie at the same time.
0: I would say if you want to talk about the satire paradox, right? Like, there's like, this is a thing actually. Um, somebody i listen to i think it's i forget who exactly it is talks about how like there is this thing where in the course of a show or a movie a villain essentially becomes like you know the thing that people latch on to and some of that some of that is just kind of like you know contrarianism but some of that's also kind of like the people who are portraying them are stunning are like charming and like They're not totally out of their minds, right? Like the the big example that I always hear about this is Jack Donaghy, in um in uh the Thirty Rock. Thirty Rock, thank you. Um, where you know his he starts out the other you know the parallel is also Ron Swanson, right? He starts out as like this like um you know conservative kind of d bag, but like he's he you know Alec Baldwin and and Nick Nick Nick. Uh, whatever his name is. Offerman? Yeah, Nick Offerman are so such charming people um, that, like, they kind of, like, turn the audience to their side. But also, like, the other aspect of this is that, like, in a lot of these shows, right, like, the, you know, the I guess the, you know, uh, the, the kind of, like, emancipated liberal woman tends to be the main character so it tends to have a lot of conflict. Also tends to be sad and, like, a failure at their love life. Whereas, like, this, Putative antagonist, right, like antagonist, like father, like like character, has his life together and is, you know, nice and charming, so people end up sympathizing with them even though, you know, it kind of cuts against the politics of, like, everybody who's writing the show and so they're kind of, like, forced into this situation where, like, this guy who's supposed to be, like, a representation of a lot of the things they hate ends up being a thing that a lot of people love, right? Um,
1: yeah, I, 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 I think, I mean, the prototypical example of this is Walter White, right? Like, the people who think, you know, Walter did nothing wrong or right. whatever, another, you know, it is so, o- O'Brien, can you please stop? Uh, it is so um, antithetical to what that show is supposed to be about. Right, Uh, Walt is the protagonist, but he is not a good person. And it is the conflation of those two things because I think, I would would make the argument, you might not go to this level with me, I would make the argument that it is men who are submerged in sort of a toxic masculinity ideal of themselves obviously connect to Walter White because he is sort of typified toxic masculinity. So if you are the kind of person who thinks toxic masculinity is good, actually, and the way that, you know, I don't know, modern like modern values attack that sort of thing you probably look at Walter White and think that he is like a fucking he is the coolest or whatever right Uh, because he is a nerd who became the most powerful man in crime but when I look at that I I see a guy who is completely undone by his pride and his ego, because those are also pieces of like the kind of toxically masculine archetype that, that eventually lead to his downfall. And when we talked about bringing about, I I went into this whole thing, how like Mike, Mike is the foil because he is the truly masculine man that Walter thinks he is right, who is legitimately doing it for the altruistic betterment of his family. And he doesn't have the ego that Walt does. And that's why Walt kills Mike he it's just because of the of ego and he can't see a man do what he wants to be doing better than him basically right this is my this is my like breaking pad thing i think people misunderstand that because it is you know there is there are a wide view of ideologies in the world and some people are going to look at for instance <clears throat> Ken's embrace of the patriarchy in the Barbie movie and they are going to say that, that, that that's cool right Ooh. you know
0: i'm happy for ken right <laughs> like <laughs> yeah no I, I i i think i think most of that's fair i also think there's like a level of i think whenever you talk about this kind of thing there's a level of like you know um you know like uh but it would have been different if i was there like i am built like the i'm built different type of thing which i found out came from like what's uh what's uh, mark Wahlberg quote where he claimed that if he had been on, like, one of the planes during 9-11, it wouldn't have gone down like that or whatever. It's like, yep. you know, that kind of, like... I think he said
1: he was supposed to be on one of the planes and then he didn't go. There's a lot of those stories. Uh, yeah. Seth uh, McFarlane was supposed to be on one of the yeah. um, uh, 9-11
0: planes and he overslept and missed his flight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where, like, you know, you, you, you pull... You pull enough people, and like you know, it's like eighty percent of men think they could fight a bear or something. It's not that high, but like you know, uh, you get these charts about like animal that average man thinks he could take, and it's like you know surprisingly high for like animals that they clearly don't stand a chance against, type of deal, right? Like that yeah. that, that kind of thing. Um,
1: yeah, this is this is all sort of part. I like oh something I have been just obsessed with, and I've talked about this. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast. I have been obsessed with watching YouTube videos. About like the red pill movement getting essentially just owned and made fools of and made fun of because they're just like the biggest fucking dweebs on the internet. Sure. <laughs> it's fun to bully them, basically, or whatever. But like this is the kind of this is the kind of thinking that, like, animates these kinds of guys right you know and they say that oh god this just so great they just say like the dumbest shit and it's like these are the kinds of people who are going to watch the barbie movie they're going to see ken and be like oh yeah ken is like <laughs> you know <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know i don't even know what they would fucking say the sigma
0: he ken ken is on this sigma male grind set or something yeah. right ken <laughs> ken is uh ken is on the sigma grind set until he gets cucked um, essentially, right? <laughs> like, um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think there's like a thing there about just kind of like general levels of confidence, right? Like, you know, the same type of person that thinks they can fight a bear also probably is successful because they like they strive beyond their means. And like sometimes, you know, sometimes that works out because, you know, I'm sure you know this in life. There's a lot of people who like vastly overestimate their competence but like you're at the same kind of like level as them and like you're and and like it's like well I, I might actually be better than the median because who knows how many people like that are out there versus me right or like sometimes the job just requires confidence right like sometimes just like things might actually be easier than you think you are it's just a matter of taking the step and i think that's like a what, a what a lot of this kind of stuff like speaks to um it just kind of, like, obviously doesn't always get directed in the healthiest direction, right? Like, th- this is why, like, say, a lot of people, especially when he was more about just kind of, like... felt like, you know, around, was it, 12, 12 things for life, but the early Jordan Peterson stuff, right? Like, you know, talks to young men, gives them a sense of purpose, gives them a way to order their lives. And I don't doubt that there are many people who were like, legitimately helped by that kind of thing, right? Like, the stuff that goes off the deep end is less, is, you know, more harmful, less helpful... But like the, the the part where like you know take charge of yourself and like apply yourself is like you know kind of basic good advice that you know sometimes you just need like an angry man that sounds like Kermit to tell you to do it in order in order for it to work right like
1: <laughs> Jordan Peterson counts like Kermit the Frog. How have I never noticed that before? Holy fuck! Really, you've never. Heard of it before? <laughs> oh my. I don't. I don't fucking watch Jordan Peterson we videos. Like, clips, you know, I, mean, like, I don't
0: either. But like, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. He does.
1: he does sound like Kermit the Frog. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just think that. Um it's funny because I think a lot of this stuff is sort of unrealistic in, in a certain sort of sense, right? Uh, like one of the things that people will talk about when they when they're talking in these sort of spaces is like, "Oh, well the, the the you know, there needs to be a leader in the relationship and I need to like Andrew Tate will say shit like this, right? He'll say like, "I if I'm responsible for a woman's safety and men are protectors, so protectors are going to be responsible for women's safety. I need to have, you know, authority over You know over her or whatever you know if i'm going to be the one making the decision on what you know like fucking alleyway we walk down that might have several assassins it's like this is ridiculous no one lives in a world where right like you have to violently confront like nobody needs to carry a fucking like you know it is it is true levels of i studied the blade cringe <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> which is what i find so satisfying about watching people own these guys um but yeah i imagine that i imagine that this like group of people are gonna are gonna find a lot to sort of empathize with in ken um especially because i actually think the movie does make a mistake by um sort of divorcing barbie and ken at the end of the m- at the end of the movie right uh, like i said i think it's making a, a point about sort of like this uh you know like this this nature of um in traditional sort of gender roles men derive their emotional well-being from their from women right uh because men are typically not emotionally available to other men um but uh So, breaking that for Barbie is that she doesn't need Ken. She's not in in love with Ken. But I was actually kind of hoping for another sort of version of the message, which which I would say would be kind of the Waymond message from Everything Everywhere All at Once, um, which is that you know there is, the, the, you know, this is a version of masculinity and what it means to be kind of like a partner um, to the lo- to like the woman in your life, and I feel like early Ken in that movie is the is the prototype of that, right? Uh, who who cares a lot about Barbie and who supports her and right and you know all this other stuff. And obviously it's funny, there's bits and jokes or whatever, but I don't know. I was I was hoping they would get together. That was my that was my one wish. Yeah,
0: no, and, and I think I think. I think you're a little too optimistic. I think the reason that Barbie doesn't end up with Ken is because that's the way that a movie ends, and uh, you can't like and explicitly like you that can't be the ending because that's the way a stereotypical movie ends, and that's like not the right message for the film, which I don't think is like a problem, but I think that's the explicit. I think that's the pretty explicit reason why why you know Barbie doesn't end up with Ken. Um,
1: uh, I don't have that cynical that cynical a take,
0: but. You know what? I I will tell you that the daughter literally says that can't be the ending for Barbie, right? Will Ferrell says Barbie loves Ken, and the daughter says that can't be the ending for Barbie, right? Like, I think that's a pretty, (coughs) like, pretty explicit intention there. Like,
1: yeah, you know, maybe you're right. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. This is part of my thing about like, uh, I kind of don't like the way that it attacks, kind of like, traditional feminine values. Yeah. Maybe there's more evidence of this. I don't know I don't know how I feel about it. I want to kind of give, I want to give the filmmakers more credit than that, right? Like, I think that Noah Baumbach, I think that Greta Gerwig are really smart, obviously. Um, and they understand the nuances of this stuff. But maybe they don't. Yeah, no, I mean, there's...
0: Like I said, maybe the movie's just a little bit confused. because, like... There's like a moment where the daughter calls Barbie a nut job, and then like Kesey and says, "Oh no, uh, like like a like some euphemism, like a altered mental, you know, like this is some some like new euphemism, which is a joke, right? Like it's clearly played. It's like you know, but like that's a weird thing to be in this movie, right? Like you know that that is you know otherwise just kind of like pretty pro modern feminism, right? Like." <coughs> so <coughs> excuse me I'm sorry I don't know exactly what they were what their kind of overall intention is um and maybe that's the point right like you know uh there's no right answer to that kind of thing
1: yeah Maybe, maybe the point, and this is sort of the thing that is weirdly like frustrating about like this meta modern stuff, right? Which is that it's not an allegory; it'll never match up one to one. You can't build out sort of the you know like the web of interactions that makes it that make it make sense. Um, and that's fine, I guess. I don't know. Part of me just wants to sort of like call it, call it, call it quits. You know, you can't, you can't make it make sense part of this is just going to always be weird. It is a bunch of round pegs trying to get into a bunch of square holes, but some of them get through, and that's fine, and I should sort of, sort of like, take it. Yeah, know? no, I mean,
0: in terms of visual language, <coughs> this film was pretty, pretty great, right? The opening is like a one-to-one parody of... Uh, <coughs> fuck. 2000, 2001 A Space Odyssey, yeah. yeah. The kind of moment where, like, Ken gets red-pilled, right like where he like <laughs> sees like you know men everywhere and the dollar bills flying by like that's like i feel like that was like a reference that i was supposed to get that i just didn't like recognize right like i thought that was super pretty the pastel like the the sets are great um the 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 i'm just ken musical number right like i'll see you on the beach in malibu or i'll see you on malibu beach or whatever that was fantastic I love that part of the movie. I want that somebody to like upload that scene to YouTube so I can watch it on loop for like half an hour, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yep, I agree. Um, and you know, it's it's like it's it's. <coughs> I think it's spectacle is worth the price of admission, um, even if like you know I think it's muddled and confused. Other fun little things like, you know, I I was uh, like the Kate McKinnon's like weird Barbie, right? Like, I thought that was a, a, a neat idea. Um, well, you know, again, for, for our more technical minded viewers out there, don't try and understand the, like, mechanics of the Barbie universe, because none of them make sense at all, but I don't care, right? Like, um, like the movie seems to imply there is a Barbie for every Barbie doll in the world, but it's sometimes it's that the Barbie is the agglomeration of all of that type of Barbie, right? Like, um... But, you know, that's ultimately not important. But it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a fun movie. And, like, with lots of – so something that I thought was super interesting was um, Alan and Midge are real Barbie dolls, right? Like, they are real things that happened. And maybe a week before the movie came out, um, um, I forget. I think his names like, Kudos or something, Many Kudos or something like that. He's an internet guy. Um, he, he has a video series called Many Scandals. And he did a Many Scandals video on Barbies. Um, mostly they're about, like, nerd stuff, right? Like, about, like, Magic the Gathering whatever. But um, he explains that, like, um, uh, that Midge was, was one of her things when she was pregnant, right? And this caused a controversy because she was sold by herself and a bunch of mothers in the Midwest were like, this is encouraging, like, getting pregnant out of wedlock, right? This is immoral. And this is what caused Alan to be spawned, right? Because he was the husband for Midge. So that... Like it was acceptable for her to be pregnant, for her to be pregnant, but like, and the joke, you know, his tagline was like he fits in all of Ken's clothes, which like quickly became like, you know, uh, a gay joke, right? The Earring Ken was like a real thing that like, um, apparently one of the most sought after Ken dolls because like the gay movement at the time, because it was much you know much less prominent then, right? Like it was still like, you know, people in you know it was open in San Francisco, closeted everywhere else, that kind of thing. He was like wearing effectively a cock ring around his neck um and like uh like the people at Mattel just didn't know and so that that doll just sold out everywhere and it's like impossible to get now um so like you know that's all real stuff I'll try to remember to put that video in the um in the description because there's a lot of interesting stuff there that like actually kind of (coughs) increased my appreciation for the movie in a weird way
1: Okay, you know, fair enough. The one thing I do want to talk about is the the box office numbers behind Barbie and Oppenheimer, which I do think um, are really... Like, this is something else. Um, There's a guy who said that... um, Hollywood doesn't learn from flops; it learns from hits, right? Which is to say that movies will flop, and Hollywood will never learn a lesson, right? Um, you know, uh, The Flash just lost two hundred million dollars or whatever for for Warner Brothers, um, and the idea is that Warner Brothers isn't going to pivot; it's not going to change its strategy or anything uh, because of like because of that. Flops are just kind of like part of the uh, part of the calculus of, of movie making, but but hits change things right when people see a big unexpected hit and it comes out of nowhere it changes their thinking in really dramatic ways uh, a good example of this would be something like deadpool comes out r-rated um you know an r-rated superhero movie or whatever and that is the kind of thing that would go on to fuel other sort of takes on like this r-rated superhero Genre, right? You know, uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League is R-rated. The Batman vs Superman Ultimate Edition is is, is R-rated. Um, you know, you'll have R-rated uh, the like Punisher movies. You'll have R-rated um, uh, the um, Logan, right? You know, it's like, oh, people will understand that. Okay, yeah, you can put this thing behind an R rating in order and, and like make this because this movie is a big unexpected hit, comes out of you know comes out of nowhere kind of thing. Um, barbie and oppenheimer i think will probably do that and uh and the thing i would probably expect is like just creative license i imagine that the order of the day will be go find you know talented unique filmmakers and kind of let them make their passion project and let's see if we can you know sort of fuel in a way uh like this kind of thing um and maybe the answer will be, maybe the answer will be, yeah, yeah. maybe the answer will be no, who knows.
0: Yeah, like, um, go find Taika Waititi and make him, like, give him, you know, tell, make us a weird movie about, you know, G.I. Joe. Um, <coughs> or something like that. Like, I heard there's, like, 11 other Mattel movies in the works, which is terrifying, but, you know. One uh, of the, yeah, Mattel movies in the works. Let's, let's take a look.
1: Okay, so Masters of the Universe. I think that just got canceled, actually. Hot Wheels from J.J. Abrams. Who knew? Look at that. Barney. That's weird. Polly Pocket. Okay. Do you know Major Matt Mason? Who the fuck is that? No. Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Uno. Magic 8-Ball. American Girl. Viewmaster. Chatty Cathy. Thomas the Tank Engine. And Matchbox.
0: I don't know. I don't know how you make any of these successes. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the answer might be, find an auteur who played with these toys as a kid and has a weird idea for them and let them go wild, right? Like, but, you know, who knows? Like, to your point, you know, this movie was a success Mattel will make all 11 of these sequel movie or you know of these other movies and they will all flop and they won't learn a thing maybe right like who knows um yeah uh, yeah um yeah well uh that's I guess our main segment how is your how are your almost three weeks buddy
1: Oh my god, you're right. It has been almost three weeks. Um, I've been doing a lot of stuff. You know, the big, the big news for me is I've been playing Hearthstone Battlegrounds um, as a uh, as like a chess game. I had to do it for a, a, a Hearthstone event, right? Like an in-game event. Um, and... It's so fun. Ah, it's so fun and addicting. And I don't know what's fucking wrong with me. Uh, I'm like super into it now. <laughs> yeah. Um... I have no idea what else to say about it besides just I don't know. Because we we did auto chess, right? Do you remember doing auto chess when you did, or TFT? Yeah, I did TFT. Did. I never
0: played like the original auto chess, but I played a lot of TFT. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, Battlegrounds is the Hearthstone version of uh, Auto Chess or TFT. Um, but it's it's a very different game and I would say it's better. I like it better than I like TFT, right? Um, TFT is has a lot to do with kind of like the items that you, that you buy and kind of equip. Battlegrounds is, um, it's like you have seven slots on your board and you can only get that many, you know, that many slots. But it's about scaling, right? Um, and you can have stuff like characters from the very early game who scale into the mid and, and like late game, right? Like there's a character called... Um, uh god yeah man, what's what's that thing called? Um God, it has the dumbest name whatever it's like a demon thing and it's like every time you play a demon this gets plus two plus one or something right um and it's like oh well you buy this on your first turn and you're just you just go demons and you just pop 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 pop, demon 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 and it just gets so big that this is the thing that you take from turn one to turn 20 right um it, it goes all the way in but it's just like th- there because that level of scaling exists um and there's also no economy in the sense of um you know if you remember in tft there's that thing where you save up to 50 gold um and then you earning interest every round. In Hearthstone, you just get 10 gold a round. But, like, you can you can buy stuff that affects your gold, right? So you can buy a minion that'll say, get one gold at the end of your turn, right? Um, or battle cry, get one gold next turn, that kind of thing. Um, and it's just, like, all of that stuff, I think, is, is pretty interesting and, like, pretty complex, and I have just been having a fucking ball. It might be, I think the real thing that it comes down to, to be honest with you, is that um, there's heroes and there's, like, 50 of them, right? Your lobby is full of eight different heroes. They all have hero powers and different, you know, kind of like builds and stuff like that, or whatever. Um, and then there's also a huge collection of creature types, only five of which of ten. There's There are ten, it's like Nagas, quillbor, you know, beasts, Murlocs, demons, all this other sort of stuff. But there's only five available at any time, right? And the the interaction between heroes available tribes and like, the different permutations on all of that is so complex. I don't think anybody can math it out, right? And nobody could do this thing where it's like, oh, I understand this board. It's like, oh, well, if there's Naga and Undead but no beasts, then I can go. Th-. And it's like, you, no one could do that because the uh, the options, the permutations are so fucking insane, right? You never be able to actually, like, get it all out, which truly makes every f- every round feel unique. Um, but also legible, right? It's not, like, it's not like it's completely random. You have a strategy that you're building towards and it's, and it's comprehensible, but because the parameters of every game are randomized to such a degree where you're never going to have the same heroes in a game, you're never going to have the same tribes in a game, um, it's just like... It, I, it's like infinite content. I just can't run out of it because every game is a unique set of circumstances that I have to puzzle out and get to the bottom of. Does that make sense? It
0: does, it does, yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah, so, I don't know. Uh, I've been having a great fucking time playing TFT. I've also been playing Diablo. The Diablo season started up, and I've also been playing Minecraft um, because the Minecraft server that I've been working on, uh, you know, just been having fun with that. Um... There's a lot of new stuff in Minecraft. Every It's like, what the fuck is a mangrove? Um, but, you know, like, I don't know. This is all just kind of, like, normal... Uh, I guess, I don't know, like, normal bullshit. The real thing is that I'm just very off WoW at the moment. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and to be honest, I'll probably be off WoW for, I guess, a while longer? I don't know. I've, I, it's mostly about my Mythic Plus team, where one of our friends is moving, uh, so he just doesn't have access to his computer. He hasn't had a computer set up. So we haven't even do, done the new Mega Dungeon yet. And I want to save that experience to run with my friends, obviously. Uh, but... You know, yeah, that's kinda that's kinda where we're at.
0: Very cool. Yeah. Um on my end, uh I've been I played a little bit of the Diablo season. Um felt mostly like more of the same, honestly, so I'm not like super like I picked up I am playing a necromancer just to see what it's like, but it was like not super compelling enough to me for me to be like okay, I'm like into this. Um I'm interested they're basically doing the POE thing. Where, like, each new season brings with it, like, new mechanics type of deal. Which could be interesting long-term. What else? Um, I picked a pizza tower. uh, Just because, like, that was a meme game. And it looked interesting. Like, I'm into platformers. And uh, it's fun. I don't know if it's got a lot of staying power with me. But, like, you know. It gave me, like... Like, there was... One of the achievements is... um, uh, Beat, like, the first level in under two minutes. And I got that... Finally got that... Like, I kind of got speed running. Because, like, a much smaller scale but um i find that like most time trials in gate in like games are pretty loose <coughs> the one in, in this game is pretty tight it's not like impossible but like i definitely had to try a bunch of times definitely had to develop strategies around it when i actually beat it i ended up beating the record by like 10 or the, the the benchmark by like 10 seconds so you know i was like oh like i get it now um so that was neat um very crisp controlling i like it a lot um I hit gold in Street Fighter on my uh, on my boy uh, Zangief, um, which is great. Rashid came out today, so I, but I haven't played him yet. Um, what else did I play? I uh, I jumped into um, uh, CK3 for a little while, um, just because I wanted to. I felt the desire to play around with that. It was fun enough. I played as like one of the Sami, and I formed the Sami Kingdom. I was like, you know what, I'm good for a little while. There's a new, there's a new uh, pack coming out on the 22nd, so I'll probably dip my toes back in on that. Um, otherwise, I've been dipping my toes back into WoW just because it's fun to kind of like clean up content. If there's been a bunch that's like uh, accumulated and I do kind of want to hit, my, uh, hit my, my traveler's log for the month. I like the amount at the end of it, so I might do that um oh i have to hit that that's true Yeah, i would say like it's the first month where i've had any trouble hitting it so like i've been doing things like the miscellaneous is like go cheer at the dragon aspects and get 50 travelers points right so definitely not hard to do but a a, a thing that's like whereas normally i'll just get it by like raiding with the group and then the group the group the guild's been kind of like lax so it's not even like we're raiding super regularly so i don't even know if we'll hit that limit so you know i'm not too chuffed about it but you know it's uh
1: yeah, no, I, I haven't thought... The idea behind the Trade Descenders is that anyone who's playing the game in a reasonable pace will will clear it out by the month. But, yeah, I have only been raid logging, and even then I've skipped a couple of raids. Uh, like, we skipped a couple of raids just for, like, attendance stuff. I skipped a, a couple of raids. Like, I don't think I raided last Thursday, but I don't even know that we got enough people for, like, last Thursday. It's just like, yeah, yeah. stuff
0: like that. Last Thursday we did not have enough people, because I wanted to raid, and there weren't people there to raid. Um, this is why I know this. Uh... But I played Street Fighter instead, so, you know, all is good in the world. Um, yeah. Did I do anything else of particular note? Um,
1: did you ever play Mordor Shadow of
0: War? Yes. Wait, did we talk about this? I think we might have. I don't know if we talked about it for an episode, but um, I, okay. I, like, beat most of it until you hit, like, Act 3, which is, like, grind everything to infinity. I just never did that. Um, I don't, did you, like, conquer all the fortresses or whatever? I don't remember, honestly. It was so long ago.
1: Okay, I feel like I, I have 25 hours in that game, and I feel like I have just opened it up, which is insane to me, um, because it has a very slow ramp tutorial getting you into... Like, at first, you're just doing normal stuff. You're assassinating chiefs. Okay, then Minus you know, Ethel becomes Minis Morgul, right? To be fair, I thought it was very fucking cool. Um, and you get your ring back from Shelob, and now you can dominate... Uh, like the the other war chiefs, I was like, "Oh, okay, that's cool. I can like carry these guys around." Then you conquer the fortress in uh like the Sea of Nurn or whatever, and I was just like, "Oh, fu- okay, wow, all right." And so it was incredible to me that this this game had a twenty five hour you know sort of act one basic introduction to its core its core mechanics. Um, that was just that was wild to me.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it i i, rem- I, I kind of remember that just because like it, i remember it taking a while to really get into it also i think when i was playing like they had like a kind of like battle pass paid to winny thing when it initially launched that people were mad about i know they eventually pulled that out <coughs> so they might it might you might be having a better experience than i did was i beat out yeah, like, maybe around release i think I I mean,
1: yeah, there is an online component that I just don't participate in, right, which is that, like, you know, you can create a warband of orcs who, like, hold your fortress and other people can attack your fortress, sort of like uh, Clash of Clans or whatever, and it's just like, I'm obviously not going to deal with that, this is a game from six years ago, right, I don't even know who the fuck is playing at this point, right, um, I'm I'm mostly just kind of in it for you. Know, like honestly, the mechanics are just like a lot of fun, and the nemesis mechanics are really good. And I just haven't played like a open world kind of stealth action RPG game. Um, it's honestly surprising to me how good this game is. And there's not uh, like a sequel or anything else being kind of like done. Obviously, Monolith Studios I think is working on the are uh, just like other stuff. They're owned by Warner Brothers, yeah, I'm pretty sure. So Brothers I think they're doing thing. that Suicide Squad game, but um yeah
0: yeah they um i mean it's kind of criminal like i think like shadow like the uh, nemesis system is like one of the coolest things in the world and it's just like you know never
1: it is so it is truly so fucking cool and i like i can't even i don't know i can't even say anything more about it besides it's just like so fucking cool
0: <laughs> yeah um i wonder what is what is monolith production the monolith did a bunch of batman stuff i guess also they worked on Oh no, it just brought me to Web WB Games store. Never mind, sorry. I clicked on Monolith on the developer on Steam and I bring to the WB games page, which has like Mortal Kombat and whatnot. Oh.
1: oh, okay.
0: Uh yeah, Suicide Squad is rock steady. Does Monolith even exist anymore?
1: What the fuck? Uh Monolith Studio
0: it looks like it exists. It's got a website, at least. Oh,
1: they have a Wonder Woman game?
0: They worked on Gotham City Impostors, which is a game that I thought was fun, but no one played.
1: Oh, my God. They did No One Lives Forever? These games are, like, famous. They did Matrix Online. Wow. I didn't know they worked on all of this stuff. I guess I did know some of this. Um, because they knew that they were behind fear, um, which is another game that everybody like really fucking loves. What is Guardians of Middle Earth? Oh my God. No way. It's a Lord of the Rings MOBA.
0: Sounds about right. That is ridiculous, but okay.
1: Yeah, I mean uh Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of War are obviously the, the big ones, but I do remember No One Lives Forever. That's the, the, the it's a big cult classic game. Like it's like a game developer's sort of like the way that like um Who would I would I like I don't know, it's like a movie person's movie. By the
0: way. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well Yeah.
0: I don't know. Yeah that about it then?
1: I guess that's about it.
0: Um, well, if you'd like to write to us about any of the things we talked about this podcast, you can reach us at gmail.com or podcast. You can follow us at twitch.tv, slash or youtube.com, slash the games These go out live. Um, or and review us on iTunes or, uh, wherever you can, uh, excuse me, wherever, uh, you find podcasts, We'll be there um links are all in the description but that's everything i have do you have anything you're looking to promote uh
1: i don't think i've well actually i have one thing i'm looking to promote which we revealed a new game last week uh called airframe ultra have you have you seen or heard of airframe Ultra? i have
0: uh i saw that when you retweeted like the the teaser and i saw the trailer because i am subscribed to your youtube channel (laughs)
1: yeah airframe ultra is it's like the it's the new game from the developers of um of of rain world uh but it's a very cool kind of combat racing game um that uh that they've been working on that i've playtested it's super fun uh i'm actually gonna i i want to show it off on stream it's super bare bones obviously uh and i we've talked about how you know like what we want to do this deep in development um but uh I really want to show it off on stream. I want to. I want to play Airframe Ultra with, with people. Uh, <laughs> so if you, you know, if you want to take a look at Airframe Ultra, give that give that bad boy a wish list. Go nuts.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, that's cool. Um, with that, I'm going to say uh, until next time, your listeners.
1: Until next time, loyal listeners.